Thanks for downloading from Digital Mindfulness. This is episode 51. Welcome to the show. In this episode, I speak with the anthropologist and vice president of Intel's corporate sensing and insights group, Genevieve Bell. As you'll hear in the show, Genevieve was instrumental in creating the first user experience research group at Intel and has spent a large part of her career examining how different cultures use technologies. Genevieve's work has been widely praised within the wider technology industry as she was named as one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company. In 2012, Genevieve was also inducted into the Women in Technology International Hall of Fame. This is a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Genevieve, welcome to the show. It's an absolute delight to have you on and I'm really, really glad that we can actually finally meet and share your insights with the audience. So welcome to the show. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Lawrence. Thank you. So I'm wondering, what exactly is a culture anthropologist and how did you become one? (laughs) Well, a cultural anthropologist, uh, in the British vernacular, I'd be a bit like a social anthropologist, but cultural anthropologists study culture, study human beings. We're interested in what makes people tick and what are the patterns of meaning in which people are kind of embedded and enmeshed such that make up culture. basically, but part and parcel of the broader range of humanities of how do we study human beings and how I became a cultural anthropologist. Well, my mom's an anthropologist and I grew up on her field sites in central and northern Australia in the 1970s and 1980s, but she was very clear I shouldn't become an anthropologist. She thought one in the family might be one too many. So I'm actually interested, what does your mum think about what you're actually doing now, bringing together these two disciplines of anthropology and this kind of really exciting new world of technology. She must be really interested. My mum's actually, yeah, she's really supportive of it, actually. My mum, you know, had a, a kind of a, an interesting career anyway. I mean, she spent a bunch of time in academic positions, but also ran her own company and worked for a bunch of different indigenous organizations, driving a range of kind of public policy and cultural interventions. So I think she looks at this as part and parcel of how that work has evolved in the last 30 years. So Genevieve, one of the big questions that I ask to guests when they come onto the show is what does it mean to be human in a hyper-connected age? And I'm really interested to know what you might think of that, given that it's your job to understand digitized culture. Mm. So I think there's always this really interesting narrative, at least in the West and probably, you know, at the risk of being a bit punsy, a kind of post-enlightenment, late capitalist West at that. But I think inside that framework, we have this really, we have this really interesting story. We tell ourselves that our humanity and our humanness is always in conflict with the next generation of technology. So, you know, if you look back at the introduction of well, everything from the railway to electricity to television and many other kind of smaller technological changes in between. We worry about the impact of technology on ourselves, on our cultures, our families, our communities. And this next generation of technology is part and parcel of those same conversations, right? And I think part of what gets interestingly erased in that cultural discourse is the fact that there are many things that make us human that change remarkably slowly. And, you know, although I'm not a kind of a... I'm a cultural particularist in the sort of the Ruth Benedict School of Cultural Anthropology. I don't tend to believe in, you know, human universal truths. 
But I do think there are some things that are part and parcel of most cultures that change remarkably slowly. Uh, amongst them would be the fact that human beings are social creatures, that we are frequently defined in terms of our social relationships, as well as our shared communities of practice, as well as the larger meanings in which we are kind of invested, as well as the objects we use to talk about ourselves. And I think those things are kind of a constellation of stuff that makes up our humanity. And those things tend to change quite slowly. How they get manifested is obviously different generation to generation, country to country. But I think we always tell this story that says, you know, technology changes everything and that we're constantly in conflict as a result of it. And I'm fascinated about what's sort of lurking inside that narrative and why it's both um, pervasive and not true. Why do you think we're so ready as a society to jump into discussions of um, technology being at odds with the way that we develop as humans? Do you think it's related to what we believe is a lack of control that we have over technology, technological development and the way that that might impact on our humanity? No, I think it's actually, it is a shrewd question. I wonder if part of it is about how do we buy ourselves enough time to work out how we want to adapt to things. And I was thinking about mindfulness as I was driving to work this morning and sort of that notion about how do we manage our relationship to technology. And I was thinking, well, you know, some of the technologies that have been around since before we were kids. So, you know, television famously introduced in Australia in the 1950s in Britain in the 40s, the same in the U.S. Accompanied ever since that moment in time by conversations about how much is too much, where should that content come from, what kind of cultural narratives are being uh, venerated in that that cult, that kind of technology, how far away should you sit from it, what are the kind of the etiquettes that surround it, and that hasn't really stabilised. I mean, we probably worry less about technology, you know, making it being bad for our eyes. <laughs> that was a big thing when I was a kid. But, you know, we still talk about kind of the totalising power of television content. We still talk about television constantly, and it's a technology that's surprisingly old. So I sometimes wonder if what we're doing when we agonise about all of this is buying ourselves a little bit of time to work out how it's going to settle in. We were talking earlier about how it's your job to understand digitized cultures around the world and it's absolutely fascinating that you grew up in Australia with indigenous peoples and so um, so you understand um, that and now you work right in the heart of the technology community so I'm wondering whether you think that um, the technology we produce actually responds to the needs of people around the world or whether we're just actually creating technologies and then humans response adapt to that which is created mm. um I, I don't think it's i mean i think it's a i think it is more dialectical than that that framework allows right i think you know lots of te lots of technologies get invented not all of them stick uh you know if you and i were having this conversation six weeks ago five weeks ago we would have had an entire conversation about pokemon go <laughs> because it seemed you know, five weeks ago, so what am I talking about, sort of early August, that, you know, that technology was going to be everywhere all the time, but we've already moved on, right? So I think there's a piece where part of the challenge is that every new technology gets that kind of moment where it's all very shiny and new and everyone goes, ooh, very exciting, and not all of it lasts. So that's sort of problem number one, right? And I think problem number two is many of the technologies that do last are the ones that actually do things that as human beings we care about. They tap into 
existing either pain points or aspirations or some constellation of both. And, you know, there absolutely have been technologies over the last 200 plus years that have changed our ways of thinking about the world. And, you know, electricity turned night into day. <laughs> Cars changed our ideas about distance. So did trains. Um, you know, televisions let us see people who looked nothing like us and people who did look like us and, you know, let us think very differently about the world we lived in. But, you know, fax machines, less compelling. PDAs, something we don't even know what that stands for anymore. Second life, kind of been and gone. <laughs> so there's sort of a piece for me where sitting underneath that label of, you know, technology is a whole constellation of different pieces of things that map and connect to different ideas. And you can't talk about them absent a bunch of other important things like government standards and regulations, like pricing structures and financial models, like cultural practices. Because, you know, whilst the, the internet may be everywhere, the websites that people choose to go to, how they are physically configured, the technical affordances, those things are actually different in different parts of the world, as are, you know, what technologies predominate and what don't. So, I mean, I think... It's never been as clear as this kind of a universal landscape of it. I always think it's been much more unevenly distributed to, you know, badly paraphrase William Gibson. Would you say then, Genevieve, that that's what you're trying to do and what the best companies try to do insofar as developing um, technologies that really speak to the heart of humanity, developing core things that people need? As opposed to people's shifting and seasonal um, desires? Um, I think you have to do both and one more besides. I mean, I think there ought to be rigorous attention paid to what people actively and actually care about and what they're frustrated by. I mean, I think, you know, knowing those things makes better not just technologies but services and applications and experiences. I think you also have to know what people want, and those are sometimes two very different things. What people aspire to and what they actually do frequently exist in different domains. And I think you need to know both of those things. What is it that we wish we were and what are we actively doing? And the tension between those and the, the delta between them is actually really, I think, creatively productive. And then I think you also need to be thinking about what are the affordances of the next generations of technology and how do we think about whether they can do interesting things and are there ways we can push those technologies beyond their obviousness into something more compelling. And somewhere between all of those things, between, you know, human practice and human aspiration and technological affordances, you get to innovation. And I, I rarely think you just do it off one piece. I think it's about those things in dialogue with one another. I think that's absolutely fascinating. So I guess as a very quick aside, which technologies do you think are doing this particularly well or badly? Mm. Well, I mean, I think it's funny, right, which ones have been really successful and not. I mean, I think for better or worse, some of them are unexpected. Some of them aren't technologies, but services, right? I mean, I think, you know, I look at Amazon as a shopping portal has done a remarkable job in thinking about, I mean, a flight path in case you wondered, has done a lovely job in terms of thinking about how do you deliver goods and services. But, you know, I also think, for instance, uh, their Alexa, so their Echo product, their first kind of launch into the personal assistance domain is a really interesting example of UX done well and of kind of making sense of an object that is a new kind of category of technology. So something that has no screen, no keyboard, 
is voice-driven only, but sits in your home. So it's constantly on and constantly connected. And I think there've been some really interesting pieces of that object that suggest a very rich understanding of domestic life. And then, you know, I think the kind of the conversely, you look at, say, Netflix, <laughs> who've done a remarkable job in terms of using big data as well as human intelligence to say, what are the kind of categories of new stories that people might want to hear and how would we tell them? And then helping drive a completely, in some ways, new way of thinking about how we engage with content, you know, which was in some ways the you know, house of cards phenomena of saying you can have an entire TV show right now. We're not going to make you wait week by week. You're going to have like the box set, but by download. And I think, you know, in so doing, you know, they weren't the first people to think of it, but the way they did it changed the way people watch television. It didn't make TV any less important, but it changed the way we thought about TV. And it also changed the way people are now in turn writing stories. So there's some really interesting ways where those things are kind of iterative. And for me, you know, to answer, answer the kind of the original question you posed there about what are the good products, I think it's less about the good products and more about the people who are willing to iterate. So are you willing to imagine this is a, an iterative process where you sort of build on what you have done and don't just say, well, here's, here's the product and we're done. You're like, well, that seems unlikely. <laughs> so I was looking through your back catalogue of interviews and articles that you've written as well as your book. And you said something in passing, really, it was just one sentence and nobody really picks up on it. And I wanted to. Um, and that was this, it was, you talked about this idea of wonder and you said that once we as a society stop um, having a sense of wonder at things like Skype, email, um, etc., then we'll know that these technologies are fully embedded within um, society. They become invisible. We just accept them as being here. And one of the core tenets of mindfulness is that we we're kind of we're properly attuned to this present moment, and that we retain this sense of wonder um, at our surroundings. And I'm wondering about yourself, um, being where you are in the industry that you work in, do you still have that sense of wonder about the digitized present that we've created for ourselves? Oh, listen, I am still perpetually grateful for it and its power and the amazingness of it. But then, you know, I'm also a kid that grew up in a you know, in a place where electricity was uncertain and, you know, telephones were a luxury. Um, it's just a piece where I'm always still like amazed that you can do things. I was like, oh my God, the internet, Google, ah, Wikipedia. Oh my God, like knowledge on demand. How cool is that? But I also think there's more to wonder, right? And it's, I mean, it's interesting that you, you said it earlier that you, you know, did a lot of work in the data space and that, you know, I was referencing Netflix and Amazon because one of the things I think is this interesting tension and I'm sort of fascinated to think about what its intersect point with mindfulness is, is that um, we've come out of a, a basically a decadal cycle, effectively, where the first instantiations of big data touching us as human beings were around recommendation engines of various descriptions, right? Whether it's the search engines through Google or preference and content and taste engines through things like Netflix, uh, BBC's iPlayer, you know, whatever else there sort of is in that genre. Um, and I think what's interesting about all of those is they're predicated retrospectively on similarity. So they're always about if you watch this, then here are other things like it, right? So they're sort of, they're doing sophisticated pattern matching, which is fine. The challenge with that is that it's always based on shades of the familiar. 
And I think one of the things that makes human beings interesting to me is both their willingness to abandon the familiar and their desire to have moments that are deeply unfamiliar. And whether that's about surprise, wonder, delight, there is a constellation of things there that we don't yet know how to use data to deliver. So think about, you know, any one of those sort of recommendation engines, they only know how to look at what you have done and what other people have done, not what you will do. And they don't know how to think about, is this a moment when you were ripe to be delighted? I mean, you know, sort of the, the image in my head is the, the kind of the uh, stories that we tell about services and, and, and sort of experience where you'd say, well, you come to a new town and your device tells you where you can get, in my case, coffee. <laughs> Like, well, that's good. You know, we, we know I have a great fondness for decent coffee. It would be a fascinating thing to imagine that instead of my device saying, right, here you are, new town, we know you need coffee. It said, here we are, new town, we know you need coffee. But if you're willing to walk another, you know, 200 meters down the road, there's a piece of public art and it's beautiful. And you should go stand there and then you can have coffee. And rather than kind of delivering to this hyper-functional, transactional, instrumentalist worldview, what would it be to start to imagine using data and all that other constellation of technological infrastructure to build a world where what also could be made room for was delight, wonder, surprise, even a little bit of discomfort? Because frankly, I think those are also moments in which one learns, right? So there's sort of something for me about how do you imagine using the same technologies that we are using to deliver a remarkably stable world of the familiar to also deliver a world of surprise, delight, wonder, discomfort, curiosity? And, you know, in my most kind of hopeful days, I think about what that would look like. And that's definitely true because some of the problems that we face as a global society require us to come out of our comfort zones, as it were. They do. They require us to think very differently about all of those things. Mm. So this is just my penultimate question, but um, in this age of um, hyperconnectivity, what would you say is the most important human quality and how do we cultivate that? Hmm. I still think it's the body. And I think, you know, ultimately, you know, one of the really interesting tensions we have at this moment in time is that we have a world made digital, but we are still embodied objects. We are still embodied things as human beings, right? And I think the body is an undercalled an undercalled thing in that world, right? And because it's in that body that one experiences wonder and joy and delight and frustration and irritation and all of those things, right? So when you think about what, what does it mean to imagine those things? Well, part of it for me is about how do we continually pay attention to the body and embodiment. Now, that doesn't mean to make a fetish of it. That doesn't mean to suggest that your body is better than all others. And it does mean one ought to be mindful of differences in bodies. Because I think, you know, that's also why things like gender, race, class, sexuality, national status, ableness all matter. Because the body ultimately matters. Not in a kind of absent our hearts and our souls and our brains, but those are all also in some ways contained in our physical instrument. And for me, there's something about bodies that just continues to matter. Mm. Wouldn't you say, though, that that's addressed by the datification and quantification of our lives via our Fitbits and Apple Watches and the quantified self? Um, well, I think really interesting thing about all of that stuff is, A, that 
there are very few people who manage to persist in it. <laughs> I'm sort of fascinated by that, right? It's like, you know, you know, the data on the average holding rate for most quantified self-material is relatively small. It's about six months before people get bored with it. And I think if you actually go and ask people about what they get out of those objects, I think for most people, it, it confirms what they already know about their bodies or challenges what they know and they internalize and move on. But yes, I think there is something about that. But actually the piece I would say that as a, an anthropologist is more the signal to me about the sort of importance of the body is also about the re-emerging importance of physical objects. So, you know, what have we learned in the last year? Vinyl still sells. People buy more physical books than digital books. Uh, and I would add to the list of things that suggest the body is important, the reappearance of tattooing as well as a whole lot of like what I would, we grew up thinking as craft activities, knitting, crochet, but also cooking, woodwork, <laughs> beer making. I mean, there's this whole kind of constellation of stuff that is very much about producing physical things and also inscribing things on our bodies. And I don't think all of that's a coincidence. Genevieve, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the interview. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, you can follow me on Twitter, where my Twitter handle is Feral Data, and you could nag me to finish my book. Okay, so what is your new book going to be on, and when is it coming out? Oh, God, that's a good question. Um, there's actually two, and that's part of the problem. So one of them is about the kind of... Um, notions of otherness in technology. So think robots, artificial intelligence, and the kind of cultural and technical history of that. And then the other one is about what makes us human in the world of technology. And truthfully, I should be doing that latter one. And yet the former one keeps me mesmerized. Well, no pressure, but I can't wait for them both to come out. But um, Genevieve Bell, thank you so much for spending time with us again on Digital Mindfulness. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure.